Jeremiah chapter 29. And as you turn there, let me remind us what it is that we are doing. Uh, We've been taking several months throughout this church year to dig into our Ten Commitments as a Church. And we're doing this in order to reinforce these commitments, to remind us of these commitments, to solidify these commitments in our hearts and in our minds. Um, We want to secure this foundation for the next many years of our life together as a church. And so what are our commitments as a church? We're committed to expository preaching, to biblical theology, to biblical leadership, to God-centered worship, to authentic fellowship, to personal evangelism, to community ministry, to global missions, to personal holiness, and to genuine love. Now, the first commitment we looked at was our commitment to authentic fellowship. And we spent quite a bit of time as we were thinking about small groups and getting ready for small groups, talking about what it means to have authentic fellowship in the church of God. Then we spent some time thinking about our commitment to God-centered worship. And we talked about what God-centered worship looks like. And then our third study was on our commitment to personal holiness. And what we did there is we emphasized one feature of that, namely our commitment to a life of repentance. And so tonight we begin our fourth study, and I want us to look at our commitment as a church to community ministry, to community ministry. And frankly, of all our commitments, I think I've probably preached fewer sermons relating to this one than any of the other commitments. Um, If we've neglected any of these ten commitments, at least when it comes to the preaching and the teaching of this church, it is likely this one. And so I think this is a uniquely, particularly important study for us because I think it meets a need that we have. I think it fills a gap that we have as a church. Now, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 9, is the text that I want us to work through together in this study. Um, It is a rich text. It's a word from God that is timely for us and that we need to hear. And the plan is to study these verses together over four messages. And so I want to begin this way. I want to remind us that Christians are aliens and exiles in this world. Christians are aliens and exiles in this world. Do you see yourself that way? 1 Peter 2.11 Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the patterns of the flesh which wage war against your soul. When Peter addresses Christians, he addresses them as sojourners, as pilgrims. The Bible's message is that we are aliens, exiles, strangers in this world. We are a new creation people dwelling in an old creation world. We're no longer of this world. Our rightful home is the new heavens and the new earth. We don't belong here in the ultimate sense. 
But we are biding our time till our bridegroom comes to take us to our true home. As Christians, we're to be very different from the other people that we live around in this world. Other people around us are typically going to be living for today and worshiping the best of what this world has to offer. People around us are going to have different values than our values. They're going to have a very different worldview than our worldview. Their goals, what they call success, it's going to be very different than what we see as success. We would say that they are blind, like we used to be. But by the grace of God, we now see. They are enslaved to sin still. But we're now free. This unbelieving world represents a threat to us. This unbelieving world can lead us into temptation and into sin and away from Christ. But we represent the only hope that this world has. We have the message that this world needs, the message of the gospel. And so as aliens and exiles in this world, how now shall we live? One wrong approach that has been very popular at various times in Christian history is the approach that says we as Christians should seek to isolate ourselves as much as possible from the world. This is the approach of isolationism. Isolationism. Uh, Think about monasticism, right? Monks and nuns who sometimes shut themselves off from the world so that they can be more fully devoted to God. Throughout Christianity, there have been many hermits who have hidden themselves away, living in caves or other secluded places. Even that wasn't enough for Simeon Stylites. He built his tower on top of a cave, and he lived atop that tower, physically separated from any other people for 30 years. People would still come to the bottom of the tower, and they would send a basket of food up to him, and at times he would converse with them and preach and teach. But he lived three decades atop that tower, seeking to remove himself from contact with the world. And Christians today can sometimes follow this approach. Rather than climbing on top of a tower or joining a monastery, we can find ways to so surround ourselves with fellow believers that we seldom or ever have any interaction with people who do not know our Lord Jesus Christ. It's possible for us as Christians to put ourselves in a Christian cocoon in which all of our relationships are with Christians. All of our music is Christian music, and our movies are Christian movies, and our books are Christian books. And if we go out to eat, it will likely be Chick-fil-A, right? (laughs) For some, the only time they peep outside of their Christian shell is when they have to go maybe to Walmart or Target or somewhere like that. And and if there was a Christian grocery store, they, they would go there for their shopping, But we've all heard tales of families who went so far to protect their children from the world that they ended up not preparing their children at all for life in this secular age. 
rather than preparing their children to engage in the battle of ideas, these families tried to hide from their children that the battle of ideas even exists. I've heard of parents that wouldn't even allow a book mentioning the word evolution into their home, even if it was a Christian book defending the Christian perspective. They didn't want their kids to know that such a debate even existed. And yet study after study shows that it is those same young adults who were seldom exposed to non-Christian views as children who tend to leave the faith when they become older. The fact is, the isolationist approach doesn't work. In our Christian lives, no matter how isolated we seek to be, we will find that trouble and temptation still come our way. Remember, even when a hermit goes into a remote cave to live, his sin-prone heart is still right there with him in that cave. Isolation doesn't protect the Christian, but it does keep the Christian from being the witness and the influence that God has called him or her to be. And so we must reject isolationism. But the opposite approach can be just as deadly, if not more so. The second wrong approach is the approach of worldliness. Worldliness. This approach says that we should do all that we can to identify with this world for the purpose of witness. Yes, we are aliens and exiles, but when in Rome, do as the Romans do. If we want to be a relevant witness for Christ... If we want to be able to connect with others, then according to this view, we need to dive into the culture. We need to adopt the ways of the culture. Don't just watch Christian movies. Watch whatever others are watching, no matter how immoral it might be, so that you'll have a common language. Listen to the world's music. Don't just engage the evolutionary perspective. Try to identify with it. Maybe even adopt it. That will create a bridge for you to share the gospel. You can see that the problem with this view is that if you go all the way, you lose your identity as a Christian. We begin to forget that we're aliens and exiles. And more and more, the world begins to feel like our real home. You remember how the Assyrians captured the northern tribes of Israel and then carried them off and dispersed them among the peoples. Over time, those Jews disappeared. They they began to adopt the ways of the people, the customs of the people. They began to intermarry with these pagan peoples. And after a while, they lost their own distinctive identity. You could no longer find the Jews from the northern tribes. When Christians begin to adopt the patterns of the world, even with good intentions, the result is that our light can grow very dim, and soon we have very little to offer those who are lost and dying around us. Now, this has been a long introduction, but the reason I've given it to you is I want you to see why this particular passage is so very helpful to us. This passage gives us guidance in knowing how we are to live in a fallen world. We must reject isolationism on the one hand, and we must reject worldliness on the other hand. So there has to be some some middle path, some way of being in the world but not of the world. And so we come to Jeremiah 29. And as we do so, we find a letter 
that Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the people of God who had been taken into captivity in Babylon. And so look with me at verses 1 through 3. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So these first three verses give us the context of Jeremiah's letter. When did he send it? To whom did he send it? What's, what's going on here? So let's, let's get our bearings. Israel, of course, was made up of 12 tribes. And under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom continued to be known as the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom became known as the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom had one terrible king after another, and the nation became very, very wicked. And as we just mentioned moments ago, God used the Assyrians to destroy the nation of Israel, those ten tribes that were a kingdom in the north. The Assyrians captured the people. They took them away and dispersed them among other pagan peoples in various cities and towns. Eventually, the people of the northern kingdom became so intermarried and so mixed in with the pagan nations that the kingdom of the north was lost forever. But the southern kingdom of Judah, it had a mixture of godly kings and ungodly kings. But by the time of Jeremiah, Judah has fallen into the same pattern as the northern kingdom. By the time of Jeremiah, idolatry is rampant in Judah. The poor are being oppressed. The leadership, king, prophet, priest, they're all corrupt. Sexual immorality is pervasive. And Jeremiah is sent by God to declare to Judah that a time of judgment is coming. And this time it won't be the Assyrians who come. No, the Assyrians have by this point been defeated by another, greater, stronger power. It's the Babylonians, sometimes called the Chaldeans, who are coming. And they will destroy Jerusalem, and they will conquer Judah, and they will lead God's people into exile. Now, Jeremiah was not one of the officially licensed prophets of the kingdom. The officially appointed prophets of the kingdom were preaching a very different message. The official prophets were going around Jerusalem and Judah preaching, All shall be well. Um, listen to Jeremiah 14, verses 13 and 14. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. 
And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. So the official prophets of Judah have been preaching to the people, You're safe. God has assured us there is peace coming our way. And when Jeremiah tried to say the opposite, he persecuted him. Even as we just read earlier tonight, he tried to have him killed. But then Jeremiah's words began to be proven true. It began in 612 AD when the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians. And then in 605, a man named Nebuchadnezzar became king of Babylon. And what does Nebuchadnezzar do? In his very first year of power, he comes and he invades the kingdom of Judah. But the king of Judah submits to King Nebuchadnezzar. And rather than Jerusalem being destroyed and the people being taken into exile, an agreement is reached. Judah will now pay tribute to Babylon. Basically, Judah will continue to pay a tax to Babylon so that Babylon won't attack them. And you can imagine how the false prophets responded to all this. See, Jeremiah, we told you we'd all be spared. You you said death was coming our way and destruction is coming our way. But look, the Babylonians came. We reached a treaty. We're safe and sound. See, Jeremiah? But then... Three years later, things began to change. You see, to the south, the southwest, Egypt was getting stronger and stronger. And the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire were at war to see who was going to rule the Middle East. And by the way, who is the little kingdom that's right in between the Babylonian Empire and the Egyptian Empire? Here's little Judah. And King Jehoiakim of Judah realizes he has a problem. You see, right now, Judah is on Babylon's side, and Judah's allegiance is to Babylon. There's a treaty in place. Judah's paying tribute to Babylon. But what if the Egyptians win the war? What if the Egyptians come out on top? Well, then Judah's going to be in big trouble because they sided with Babylon. And so in what proved to be one of the most colossal blunders in all of history... King Jehoiakim changes sides. He says, we're going to stop paying tribute to the Babylonians. We're going to declare an alliance with Egypt. That was 601 B.C. And for four years, Judah is spared. And then in 597 B.C., here comes Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they invade Judah again. And this time, it's more like what Jeremiah had been promising. It began with Jerusalem being conquered. Uh, Listen to these words from 2 Kings 24. 2 Kings 24. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign, and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and all the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. 
He carried away all of Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So think back to when Nebuchadnezzar came to Judah the first time and he and the king of Judah made an arrangement. At that time, that very first time, Nebuchadnezzar did take back with him a very small group of people. He chose some of what he thought were the best and the brightest of Judah. And he took them back to Babylon with him. Excuse me. That's what we call the first wave of exiles. It was a very small wave, but it included men you know. Men like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego who were taken by Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. But now... Nebuchadnezzar has returned with a vengeance. And it's not just a few people that are taken back. Now we have 10,000 people that are taken by Nebuchadnezzar back to Babylon, forcibly taken. Ezekiel was one of those captives that was taken away. We're told that only the poorest people of the city now remain. Now what does King Nebuchadnezzar do? He places his own man, a man named Zedekiah, in power in Judah. So he leaves behind Zedekiah to make sure things stay right while he's away. And Judah has learned her lesson. She's not to rebel against the Babylonians. And while the loss of 10,000 people is terrible, the city of Jerusalem still stands. And then, just like his predecessor, Zedekiah gambled with the fate of Judah. He chooses to rebel against Babylon And the result is that Nebuchadnezzar comes back for the third and final time. And this time, it is everything that Jeremiah had ever said it would be. The city of Jerusalem is besieged. Food cannot get into the city. People had flooded into Jerusalem thinking that they would be safest there. But now they all begin to starve together within the walls of the city. Mothers begin to kill their children rather than watching them die. This is the passage where Jeremiah speaks of mothers cooking the bodies of their own babies for nourishment to eat. The circumstances in Jerusalem were absolutely horrific. And when the Babylonians finally came into the city, ending the siege, the people of Judah were so weak they could not even fight. This time, the temple was completely destroyed. The entire city was burned to the ground. And those people that had been left in Jerusalem, they become the third wave of exiles. So that's the story of what's going on behind this letter. Where does this letter fit in? This letter that we're studying was written by Jeremiah when Zedekiah is still ruling over Judah. So this letter is written when two waves of exiles have already been taken. The first small wave with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then that second wave of 10,000 people have now been taken to Babylon, including Ezekiel. But Jerusalem has not yet been destroyed. The temple still stands. Jerusalem is is filled with those poor people that were left behind. And more than 10,000 captives, the best of Judah, are now in Babylon. And so that's the situation in which we find ourselves. At this point, Zedekiah is still faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. He hasn't rebelled yet. And he is sending a message to Nebuchadnezzar. 
And Jeremiah finds out the king is sending a message to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And so he recruits the same person, the messenger, Zedekiah's messenger, who's on his way to Babylon. And he says, while you're taking that letter to King Nebuchadnezzar, I have a letter for you to deliver. Here's a letter for you to deliver to the exiles who are there in Babylon. And so, what is the context of this letter? This letter was sent by Jeremiah to the exiles in Babylon while Zedekiah was ruling over Judah. Now, the purpose of Jeremiah's letter. Why is Jeremiah sending this letter? What's his purpose? There are two reasons. First, Jeremiah is writing to repudiate the false prophets. To repudiate the false prophets. This is really interesting to me. So I want to ask you to turn back with me just a page or two to Jeremiah 27. Jeremiah 27. And look at what God calls Jeremiah to do. Beginning in verse 1. Beginning in verse 1. Jeremiah 27, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, Make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, This is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. And the many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. And so we have Jeremiah walking around Jerusalem with this homemade yoke on his own neck. And wearing this yoke, like you would usually see on a horse or on an ox, he is declaring that God has willed for Nebuchadnezzar to be in power and that all the surrounding nations, including Judah, should submit to the Babylonian king. He says, at least for a season, this is God's will for Nebuchadnezzar to rule over us all. Now, look at Jeremiah 28. Jeremiah 28, because here comes Hananiah. Hananiah is a false prophet. Look at what happens beginning in verse 1. In that same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon, Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. 
I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord. For I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. You hear how different his message is than Jeremiah's? Right? Two years from now, our king's going to return. All our exiles are going to return. Even the stuff that was taken from the temple, it's all going to be brought back. Then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to Hananiah the prophet in the presence of the priests and all the people who were standing in the house of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied come true and bring back to this place from Babylon the vessels of the house of the Lord and all the exiles. In other words, Jeremiah said, Yeah, that would be wonderful. Amen if that were to happen. Yet... Hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who preceded you and me from ancient times prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and great kingdoms. And as for the prophet who prophesies peace, when the word of that prophet comes to pass, then it will be known that the Lord has truly sent the prophet. In other words, we're going to test and see whose word comes true. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so will I break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. So you see what's been happening. These 10,000 exiles who are now in Babylon are being told... Your exile is going to be short. In two years, Nebuchadnezzar's rule is going to come to an end. In two years, you're going to be allowed to come back to your land. The treasury of the temple is going to be restored. No worries, said Hananiah and other prophets like him. You're just on an extended vacation in Babylon. You'll be home soon enough. So Jeremiah is writing this letter to the exiles to say, Don't you believe it? Don't you listen to these smooth talkers with all of their words that sound so hopeful and wonderful but are actually a deception? So now look at our letter. Jeremiah 29, 29, beginning in verse 8. Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 8. In the letter, Jeremiah says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah says this is God's word on the matter. You're not going to be there for two years. You're going to be there for 70 years. Most of the people who have been taken to Babylon are going to live the rest of their lives there. Go ahead and unpack your bags, says Jeremiah. You're going to be there for 70 years. And so he's repudiating the false prophets. But then there's a second reason that Jeremiah writes this letter, and it's this. He's writing to encourage the exiles. He's writing to encourage the exiles. Remember what happened to the exiles of the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom ceased to exist. Those people never went home. 
And surely the people of Judah are now terribly afraid that it's going to be the same fate for them. They may be thinking, we have sinned utterly against our God and our God has turned His back on us. We will never see Jerusalem again. All the promises that God made to Abraham, they're all null and void. We've been too wicked. Our sins have caught up with us. Our God has forsaken us. That very well could have been their fear. But no, says Jeremiah. Unlike the northern kingdom, God has not utterly forsaken the people of Judah. He has promises to keep. He promised Abraham a kingdom of eternal blessing. He promised David a descendant who would reign forever. No, Judah, your judgment is not a permanent judgment. Oh, it will be 70 years. But praise God, it's only going to be 70 years. And then God is going to bring you back to your land. And the temple will be rebuilt. And the Messiah will come, just as God has promised. Look at verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. I bet you know those verses, but you've heard those before. Now you see the context in which they come. Exiles in Babylon, don't believe the pipe dreams of the false prophets. Your exile is a true exile. It's going to last 70 years, but praise God, He has a plan. And this this time of weeping, it's not going to last forever. God has plans to do you good. He is going to change your hearts. He is going to bring you to a place where you call upon Him in sincerity, and then He is going to bring you home. Now you may be wondering what in the world any of this has to do with community ministry. Well, we're going to pull all of that together and all of those implications in the next three messages. Tonight was just to give you the context of the letter and to help you get the big picture of this passage. But there are two implications for us very quickly that I want us to leave us with tonight. Number one, don't believe the false prophets who would deceive you about your homecoming. Don't believe the false prophets who would deceive you about your homecoming. Yes, there will be a day when Jesus returns to earth and those believers who have died will return with Him and He will gather all His people to Himself and He will bring us out of Babylon into Jerusalem. He will bring us out of our captivity in this world into the new heavens and the new earth. We are awaiting the end of our exile. We're awaiting the day when we will no longer be aliens and strangers in this place, but we will be truly home in our promised land. But unlike what Jeremiah wrote to the exiles, we haven't been told how long our exile is going to last. 
Jesus did not give us a day or a time. He did not say 2,000 years and then I'll return. He, he didn't give us a time frame. He just said, keep watching. It will be sooner than you think. It will be like a thief in the night. We are to keep looking to the eastern sky. We are to be waiting and hoping for that day. It is right for us to long for the day when we will be free of this exile. But we must not believe the false prophets of our day who come claiming it's going to be this time. Remember Harold Camping? What, a year and a half ago, two years ago, right? How many times did he say, it's going to be on this day, everybody get ready, Christians sell your property, Christians go ahead and get rid of your income, you can quit your jobs. How many cultic leaders have had their followers come up to a mountaintop, ready to be taken up to the Lord, only for their messages to have been proven to be just lies? These people said farewell to their loved ones, these people sold their possessions, and time and again it's played out the same way. Church, let's never be deceived by the false prophets who claim to know the time and date when our exile will be over. But then implication number two. Let us hope in the promises that God has given to us. Let us hope in the promises that God has given to us. Yes, life here in Babylon can be very difficult. We are exiles in this world And you might be wondering whether or not Jesus Christ is ever going to come back. You might be beginning to wonder whether or not you will ever get to go home. You might even begin to doubt whether or not there is a heaven. But Just as Jeremiah spoke encouragement to the exiles in Babylon, so God speaks encouragement to us. In reality, our time on this earth is short. For many of us, like the people of Judah, we're going to be exiles in this world around 70 years. Some of us are going to live longer than that. Some of us are going to live a little shorter than that. But when our time of exile is over, we will get to see home. What God says to Judah, He also says to all of us who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, those words are for you. And so trust your God. He's doing you good. And His promises are sure. Amen? Amen.